Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and for the next number of weeks, we're going to continue playing audio from the recent Strategic Philanthropy Global Summit. This was a summit that my partner, John Ramstead, helped lead. Today's speaker is going to be Mark Willis. And during Mark's tenure as the CEO of Keller Williams, they became the largest real estate franchise by agent in North America. This was without question one of John's favorite interviews from the summit. And afterwards, John just raved about it. So without further ado, here's Mark Willis on this edition of Eternal Leadership. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. It is day four of the Strategic Philanthropy Global Summit, and what an amazing day already. John Ramstead, our own co-host, shared some unbelievable nuggets. Diane Patterson's story, building an over-million-person tribe in less than three years. And now we've got one of the top performers of our entire summit. You guys are in for a treat. His name is Mark Willis. If you don't know Mark's story, I want to share a little bit, of, bit, a little bit of it with you to give you some context. He's a native Texan, born and raised in Houston, graduated with a business degree from UT and became a licensed realtor at the ripe old age of 21. As a second generation realtor, one of his goals was to own his own real estate company, which he did by the time he was 25 years old. In 91, he joined Keller Williams Realty as a team leader of one of the company's largest market centers where he could quadrupled the market center's production. During his time at Keller Williams Realty International, he served in many leadership roles, including regional director for the Central and South Texas regions, president, and in 2005 became the company's chief executive officer. Under his leadership as CEO, the company became the number one real estate franchise in North America based on agent count, growing to some 117,000 agents across the globe. Mark is a shareholder in Keller Williams Realty International, an owner in several market centers and multiple regions, a respected teacher and motivational speaker. Currently, as if that wasn't enough, Mark is serving as Chief Abundance Officer of Brain Juice. You'll hear from Sam, one of the founders of Brain Juice, tomorrow and is launching our, a startup for energetic wellness in Austin, Texas. Day four is all about leverage. Believe me, this guy knows about leverage. Mark, we're so excited and welcome you to our summit. Thank you, thank you, I'm glad to be here and appreciate the opportunity. We're so glad you, you fit this in your schedule. We know you've got lots of things to do. And so why don't, you, why don't you start off by just sort of telling a little bit about your background and your story, your journey. Um, we're, we're excited to share some of, the, some of the shifts you made as you built your organization over time. Okay, so um, I think where I'll start is, uh, you know, I sold real estate right after graduating from, U, from UT in 1983. And I did that for two years. And my, my goal at that time, Tom, was to have the word, the title president under my name on my business card. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I wanted to own something. I wanted to have um, a level of success. And, and I thought that that would be a, a primary measure of success, own a, a great firm and lead it. Obviously, leadership was my passion. And so I, uh, I bought the firm where I was uh, an agent. The name of the firm is Carriage House Realtors. I built that during a real tough market downturn in Austin in the mid 80s. I don't know if any of your listeners will remember the, the oil crisis or that, and then the, the, all the, uh, the decline of the oil industry in the, in the late 80s, mid 80s in, in Texas. We certainly weren't immune from that in Austin. And um, at that time, built a company that became the number two market share company in the highest average sales price uh, part of Austin. Hmm. And then about, uh, I'd say about a year and a half later, the man that I had bought the firm from was now the leader of Coldwell Banker, ultimately all Coldwell Banker company-owned offices in Texas. And he, uh, right at the start of his career with Coldwell Banker, he bought Carriage House back from me, and I became a branch manager 
for Cobalt Banker at, I want to say something like 25, 26 years old. Mm. And that was a, that was a great experience. The way that he positioned that for me was that I would get my, now my, uh, my knowledge and education in management. And then I would be positioned to take over his role in a few years. And so what I found was that as an entrepreneur, if I could find someone that I wanted to be like, if I could find a role model and say, okay, I want to be that guy. That's who I want to be. I, uh, I, could, I could learn from that person. And typically, I could become that person and, and more. Mark, yeah. was that hard for you to find that right person that you, you know, that every part of their life is something you, you said, hey, that's, that's who I want in my life. And for the people listening, how would you approach that conversation with somebody who, who's probably much more accomplished than you were at the time? Well, John, it's real simple. If you know what you want, yeah. it's real easy to find that person. Mm. You just go to the top. Well, so therein lies the question, right? How did you knowing what you want? Yeah, there it is. A lot of people fail to have the clarity about what they want in life. And with clarity, we have real power. Mm. And so for me, I had identified owning the largest real estate company that I in the marketplace as my key objective. So what I did was I went and look for people that had done that and people that wanted that. Hmm. And once you have that clarity, you have, you have power. So I, I found Kerry Troop. Kerry Troop was the man who bought my company back. And then I went to work for him at Cobalt Banker. And then I started setting bigger goals. And when I started to set bigger goals, I realized that Cobalt Banker was not the place for me in a branch manager job to be able to do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a funny story. And I, I, I want all the listeners to hear this because it's so important to share, you know, not just the good thing, not just the good stuff that happens to us, but the, the doors that shut and how we respond to those doors when they shut. So I, uh, Coal Banker sold from being a company owned business being a franchise and when it became a franchise the franchisee um and i didn't didn't see eye to eye Hmm. on some key issues i have great respect for him he's been a real leader in the real estate industry um and yet he and i i was a little too strong for him he was a little too strong for me we weren't working together right and he fired me Now, I want y'all to hear that. Now, I had never been fired. I had never failed at anything in my life at that level. And yet, that year I had set goals that were impossible to achieve, financial goals that were impossible to achieve where I was. Mm. Then this new owner comes in and he lets me go. Now, I have to admit, I was a little bit rebellious. I, I did some things that, in hindsight, I probably deserve what I got. <laughs> you know, it was a door that shut. It was a door that shut so that another door could open. Yeah. And it was the important door that would open. And so, hey, in that I, moment, Mark, did you reassess your goals or did you say, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, these goals are a flat, these are a stake in the ground, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure I, out a way to get there? I did, what I did was I said, these goals are happening. Yeah. I'm committed. And so that's I, a mindset. I, that's a mindset right there. That's really key. Don't you think? Yeah. Let me tell you what happened, Tom. I went back into sales and in three months I made as much as I made the 18 months prior. Now, were you, were you, did you set the goal? Cause we were talking in our pre-interview about, about uh, earned income and equity matching. I want to hear more about that in a moment, but had you set that goal at that point or was it just an income goal? Didn't have it. It was an income goal. Okay. All right. So, so it was an income goal and that door closed. You said, you know what? I'm going back into sales. Let me just crank it. I went back into sales, made a hundred thousand dollars in 
um, a very short period of time. And I mean, from zero to 90 days, I was going and having back-to-back million-dollar months when people didn't have that in Austin. And as a, it really is a, as a, you know, an agent completely starting up from scratch. Hmm. And so then I got a, I got a call one day from and kind of, a, I would say a mysterious leader in, in real estate in Austin. That was from Gary Keller. And he said, Hey, I'm looking for somebody to be a branch manager for my uh, Northwest Market Center and my Southwest Market Center. At that point, I want to make sure you guys know Keller Williams, I believe, had eight offices. <laughs> um, there were two in Austin. There were two in San Antonio. There was one in Corpus. There were a few in Houston and Dallas was just opening. Wow. And they weren't even outside um, of Texas at the time. Nothing outside of Texas. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, and so and, and, and I would say maybe four to five hundred agents total. Yeah. on the high on the high estimate side so not not large so just to put that in perspective today Keller Williams has 130,000 associates <laughs> yeah and they're and, a bit beyond uh, Texas too a bit uh, beyond Texas now now I want to tell you this is an interesting piece of perspective because I met Gary Keller and I thought ah this is the new man that I want to be mm. Now, what's interesting is that Gary and I both wanted the same thing. We both wanted to build a legendary real estate company Hmm. that was, when I say legendary, not just remarkable, not just something that others would take notice of, but something that would be a legend. And, you know, for... um, for about a year, I had been working. I don't know if you ever read uh, Shakti Gawain's creative visualization book, no. but it's on it's on my book, my my list of my seventeen favorite books. And um, I had I have a if, if if you guys want it, I have a list of my seventeen favorite books. And and you so know, I would I, love to have that, Mark, and actually yeah. maybe even make that available to everybody listening. I, I, like, I, I, what is Mark's reading list? That oh, would be yeah. great. Absolutely. So um, I uh, I had been drawing these pictures in the workbook, which was to really get you deep inside a visualization as to where you want to go in life. So I began to draw pictures of having the largest real estate company in Texas Hmm. and getting recognition for that and having agents lined up at my door wanting to join my firm and being a company of attraction. And I had kind of set this identity that the the agent would be more the customer so that we we would earn the hearts and minds of the best real estate agents. So I go to Keller Williams and at that point in Keller Williams, Austin, um, I think we had somewhere around, I'd say 140, 50 to 175 agents and the, the, um, the Austin market had not yet recovered. And that office that I took over had, I think 85 agents at the time. It was the largest office in Austin and it was considered a bit of a body shop, hmm. not a place where top producers went. There were some really fine top agents there, but the majority were not top agents. Hmm. And um, within seven years, that office became the number one producing real estate office in the real estate industry. <laughs> okay, so what are, the, what are some of the things that you did? Like, share with uh, us, what are some of the things you brought to the table? Because I've heard parts of this story already, and it's fascinating the perspective you brought uh, to the table that most people would think this was about selling real estate. But I know you share so much more. Life is about serving other people. Hmm. Um, And in order to get what you want, you got to serve other people before you serve yourself. And one thing that I learned from Gary Keller, and it was great words of wisdom, and I'll take it with me for the rest of my life. And that is give first Hmm. before you expect others to give to you. 
you always have to go with a willingness to show up and give and give and give and give really unconditionally Mm -hmm. with no expectation of a return. And if you do it faithfully and you serve people in a way where they get what they want, they will then serve you. I also learned over time, and this was probably through a combination of, you know, people that, that I had as mentors, um, Gary Keller, Mo Anderson, Mary Tennant, some of the key people in Keller Williams at that time. Um, I know that I learned that um, when, when you're a leader, you begin talking about where you're going as if you are there. And you drive that vision into the hearts and minds of the people that you serve. And you do it in a way where they can feel the contribution that they're making. Hmm. So um, I believe as a leader that I was able to do those two things very well. And that is give first, give unconditionally. And then by doing that, I earn the hearts and minds of the people that I serve. And then secondly, leading with the vision and communicating as though we were already there, showing each key leader in the organization how they were contributing even before they might have been contributing at that level. Mm. Talking to them as if they were. So, you know, Mark, what I'm hearing that I love what you're saying because I think it differentiates a principle here that's very important you know, the, the, the concept of the summit was how do we do good through doing business? And a lot of people's uh, view of how to do that is make money, have some cash, write a check and give it to a, a worthy cause. And that is a great mode to do that. But what you did is you did both at the same time from what I'm hearing. You were serving others. You helped your agents uh, seeing themselves, maybe something they, they didn't see when they walked in the door to work for you. They started living this life of significance, which impacted their lives, their marriages, their kids, the community around them. And you did. So this rising tide lifted all boats by, by doing good in the lives of the people that you were touching in the business and that the business was touching, you grew, the business grew and it was all combined. And I know that led to some other things, but, uh, maybe you can share a little bit about how you combined the two of those. So, so part of it, I want, I want to back up for a second. I want to make sure you understand that um, helping our agents succeed at the highest level uh, was the one thing I knew that if they were getting what they wanted, they'd make sure that we got what we wanted. And then helping them see how they contributed to the greater good. Um, and then leading with a um, kind of a servant leader mentality serving others over myself, knowing that um, that was worthwhile work, Mm. helping other people get what they wanted and serving them. And so in summary, let let me just kind of, let me kind of walk you through how my career evolved. And so a few years later, like I went to work at Keller Williams at 2930. And then at 33, I remember walking into Gary Keller's office and I said, hey, I want what you have. Hmm. I've been making you a lot of money and I love doing that. And I'm not threatening that I don't want to do that because I know that I found my home. Yeah. I know that I want to be with Keller Williams. And so he helped me determine a way to go buy the offices in San Antonio that had basically not succeeded at full potential. And then try to do in San Antonio what we'd done in Austin. Hmm. And so I bought the San Antonio offices with Gary as my partner initially. Wow. And we, um, we went and just, a, I had a partnership in Austin that, that I was earning with Gary. And so ultimately we traded what I had in Austin for what he had in San Antonio. And that worked out really well. It kind of gave us both our own assets that we had full control over. And so I, um, I went and built San Antonio, and, and I can tell you that I still own those two offices today. Hmm. Um, those two offices, um, 
Each bank, you know, last year, I think they, they made pretty close to $3 million together, two real estate offices, $3 million in owner profit, in addition to profit sharing with our agents, about $1.5 million. And so they're, they're great businesses. Um, the reason I went and did those offices was I made a decision at 33 years old. And I want you to be really clear. When I say the word decision, it wasn't a thought. It was a decisive commitment. Big difference. Yeah. So you're 33 years old. And you- I want you to know what decision I made. Yeah. I made a decision that I would earn as much in equity income at 40 years old as I made in job income at 40 years old. So why was that the decision? How would that help somebody who's listening, who's, who's just starting this journey, who, you know, was where you were maybe in your, your mid to late 20s, Mark? Um, I'll tell you how it can help. Yeah. It was a, um, first of all, and let me back up and say, I was making very good job income at that time. I was making 250 a year in the early 90s, wasn't bad money. Um, and I thought, boy, if I could make 250 a year in job income right now and 250 a year in equity income, then if I ever chose not to want to work and just have an equity funded life, I could do that. And if I wanted to have more in life, it would give me more in life. Hmm. And so I set out, and by the way, let me just say something else. It was a challenge. So I'm, I, don't, I think most entrepreneurs are wired this way, and that is we're wired to need an ongoing challenge. And I, I'm going to talk about that as, as we get into kind of the later phases of my career as CEO of Keller Williams. So um, in, in essence, Tom, what, what I'm saying, uh, John, what I'm saying is that I – I made this decision that I knew would challenge me that would fund the lifestyle that I wanted to have and give me the freedom that I craved if I chose to have that freedom. And so I looked up at 40 years old, I was making about 700,000 a year in job income. And that year I made 750,000 in equity income. See, that's, that's outstanding, John. And I, 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 or Mark, I want to jump back for a second and talk about that decision. Um, I had the pleasure of working with Michael Gerber for a number of years as a master, E-Myth Mastery Coach. And he talked about being on your business instead of in it, right? He popularized that for entrepreneurs everywhere. And, and most, but most entrepreneurs don't understand the power of what you just shared. They, they, they look for earned income as the game they are playing. And you basically said, no, I'm playing a brand new game. I still want the earned income, but I want to build that passive you know, or, you know, equity income, as you call it, um, at the same time. Was that, was that an internal? I'm curious how, what you, how you came to that decision. Was that an internal decision? Was that a, an outside mentor? What prompted you to switch the game you were playing and play at a much higher and smarter level? Yeah, I want to say something. Most of the things I did, I was not conscious of. Mm. The really great decisions I made, I made unconsciously. Mm. And and I want, I really want everyone to hear that. Um, I've heard actually, I've, I've heard other leaders say the same thing, that in the moment, when you have a thought and it's a good thought and you pay attention, you might want to write it down. Yeah. Because one doubt, <laughs> I, I, I woke up and I thought, you know what? What if I just made as much in equity income as I'm making job income? Would that be a challenge that would excite me, that would move me forward and getting what I want to get? And I kept thinking about that all day. Now, had I planted the seeds, had I um, been focused on big goals? Absolutely. So what I needed was a vehicle that would give me clarity about how to pursue those goals. Hmm. So now equity income is the vehicle. Keller Williams is absolutely the way I'm going to do it. And I have clarity about how to move forward so that I'm moving in the direction of where I want to be. Right. 
And yet it's not something that I consciously put a whole lot of thought into. It's just, it came to me like that. I said, man, that's it. Well, the cool part, though, is it would have it would have affected your decisions going forward, though, right? In terms of structure and which things you pursued and which things you didn't pursue, I'm assuming. Yeah, and the other thing I'm thinking, too, all of a sudden you talked about clarity with your mentor. Now, you know where you actually don't have clarity because you actually uh, know where you want to go. So now you can ask much more intelligent questions to the people that can that you're sowing into you. Right. Right. No, no question about it. The, the key is, I think where entrepreneurs get off track is, number one, they don't have the right mentors. Mm-hmm. So we become the five people that we are around the majority of the time. There's no question about that. Uh, we, we become those people in all different aspects of our lives. And we become those people physically. We become those people financially. We become those people almost relationally. We become the disciplines of those people. And so I, you know, I'm I'm now with this amazing thing. I think Gary Keller is one of the finest people that I've ever known in my life. I, I'm not I, I respect him as much as I've respected anyone ever in my entire lifetime. He is a good, good human being and he's brilliant. And I have so much gratitude to Gary for being that mentor for me. So his being one of those five people in my life, um, he had big goals, I had big goals, and now we're we're both um, operating with clarity about the directions that we're going, both together and independently in building our businesses. Hmm. And uh, that clarity, you know, he certainly, uh, was performing at a high level. He was succeeding through other people. Now, I want to I say, I think that's the second area, like having the right mentors and having clarity about what you want is probably the first issue. Second one is those five people that were around the majority of the time. And I want you to know that in, in, in that context, these five people, um, Gary was teaching me along the way the way I needed to think to do what I needed to do to get what I wanted to get. And so, you know, left to my own natural devices, and this is important to share, I was a really good personal rainmaker. Like, I've always been extraordinarily persuasive. I've always been really good with people. I've always had the ability to outperform other people in a sales situation. And I am a natural kind of Pied Piper type of leader. And I have a lot of heart. And I think people follow me because they know that I have heart for them and what they want. And yet I had not learned to succeed through other people. Mm. So what I'm saying is that when I was the guy doing it, I would always go to the top. So my lesson as a business owner was now I'm in Austin. I'm working as the team leader and then later the regional director uh, for Keller Williams first region, South Texas, Central and South Texas. Yeah. And, and I'm serving the franchisees there. Now granted, I'm now a franchisee of a couple of offices. So I'm serving myself too. I, I had the luxury of getting, being paid to go build my own businesses is the way I looked at it because <laughs> uh, I'm a franchisee in the region, right? Yeah. And so uh, along that way, um, you know, the, uh, the lesson that I learned was that I was so busy that um, I would um, hire a manager for really relief Um And then what would happen is, and this is important, um, this is is really important. What happened was that manager wasn't as good as I was. So when I walked into those offices, those agents needed me. They needed my energy. They needed uh, for me to provide them with the the kind of support and leadership coaching and 
um, helping them think and stretching them. And, and I love doing that. And then one day I woke up and I realized, yeah, you know, I, I, I can't be in Austin, Houston, and San Antonio uh, in seven different locations because by that time I had seven offices uh, and, and uh, meet anybody's needs. Mm. So mm. the mistake that I made was not finding people as good as I was. Mm. So then I went on a massive recruiting campaign to find leadership talent that was as good as I was or better. And I think in, in all the cases, I found people that were better than I am. Have you found a lot of people, you know, that switch from, I know John Maxwell talks about this a lot. If you're a eight, nine or 10 mark, it's much more comfortable for you to hire five, six and sevens. A lot of people just kind of where they're at their mindset. They're not intimidated by people like that. They think they can mold and shape people and kind of bring them up. But the recipe in that model is disaster. You recognized it on your own. And I think I see that in a lot of companies where there's definitely that differentiation in talent. How would you share with somebody to almost cross that bridge? Because it's it's in the same area of servant leadership. Because a lot of millennials that I speak and talk to, it's almost a consistent question. How do I get ahead if I'm really serving other people? Won't they take advantage of that? Won't they leapfrog me? Um, you know, won't I get skipped? So may, maybe you could address a couple of those, or maybe you've seen that come up with people. Um, so here's what I would say. I, I, I understand why people would feel that way. Um, you know, it's kind of like if, if you know how to do something extraordinarily well, if you share it with other people, are they going to be able to do it as well as you can do it? You know, it's, it's kind of under that category. Yeah. I've watched this in sales over and over again, you know, culturally in real estate companies, real estate agents would be typically pretty protective about what they were doing, their trade secrets, how they were getting their business. And, and they kind of like, you know, keep, keep it with, within their, their, um, their business and not want to share it. The remarkable thing is, is that in Keller Williams, we built a culture where we taught our people that the road to mastery is teaching what you know how to do. And as you teach what you know how to do, then you become better at what you know how to do. And in doing that, you become like a, even a better expert. Mm. So That's um, a powerful takeaway right there. Yeah, I'll say. It's important. You will grow from teaching what you know how to do. You will shrink from holding what you know how to do uh, and not sharing it with others. So if you want to grow, share it with others. So it's kind of the same context. And yet here, here's what I found. Uh, if I was a seven on that scale of one to 10 that you referred yeah. to that Maxwell used, and I could go find an eight or a nine, the only risk that I had was they're not getting what they wanted. Mm. So, uh -huh. so, so say, so so say that again, Mark. I think that might be a deeper point than people might have just realized. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a big one. So if I'm a seven on John Maxwell's scale one to ten in leadership that you were talking about, Tom, and I go hire an eight or a nine, the only risk I have is if they don't get what they want. So all I did was I got clear about what they wanted hmm. and I made sure they got it. Love it. And just like Gary Keller allowed himself to be the vehicle for me to get what I wanted, I made sure that I was the vehicle for my people to get what they wanted. And when they were smarter than me, I'm doing these high fives, patting myself on the back saying, yeah, because now we're all winning. And that's you know, fascinating. They, See, I, I've heard this discussed from so many perspectives from, from people that have crushed it in business. And they all talk about the same thing, but they haven't uh, talked about it so clearly, at least from what I've heard. I love this because the, the takeaway, you know, I've, you know, Robert Kiyosaki, C, you know, uh, C students hire A students. You see that mindset all the time. But this is a very practical sense and applying it 
because you, when you became CEO or when you became in the senior leadership with Keller Williams, you know, there was 10, 15,000 agents. When you, when you stepped down a little while ago, there was over a hundred thousand agents as you shared. That's a massive growth, right? And I, and I know part of, part of what your philosophy is, and I want to, want to pivot to this in a moment, but part of what your philosophy was, you weren't just teaching them to sell stuff. You were teaching them to live a much higher calling. And I want to, I want to hear more about that in a moment because I know some of the people listening in are building significant enterprises and they can take it to a much more impactful level with your mindset on this. But what you're also saying, though, is you're getting really clear on what they wanted out of their own goals in life, right? Uh, so, so, Tom, it, it, that's where it's got to start. It's, it's not about what I want for them. It's about what they want for themselves. And I think a lot of people that are in leadership think about what, what they want for the people that work for them. And that, you know, if, if you want the same thing, then, then it works out. I think that's what Michael Gerber says in the email. He says, you know, when people showed up and they did a really good job, at first I thought it's because they were obedient. <laughs> it wasn't because they were obedient. It's because they wanted the same thing that I wanted. Right. Mm. So I think you got to find people who want what you want, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to need or want, like you could be farther along in certain areas of your life where you can help them get farther along in, uh, in areas of their lives. And yet you really need to know what they want. And so how did you uh, pull that out of them? How, what are some of the different ways you pulled that out of them? Uh, authentic relationship, trust, willingness, to be transparent. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty transparent. Like, you know, I, I can tell you guys uh, as, as much about mistakes I've made, a lot more about mistakes I've made that would be meaningful for listeners mm. uh, than I could the, the, the right things I made, I, I did. And, and I can tell you what traps I fall into that keep me from, you know, that can put me into a downward a situation that I have to correct. And I can, I can tell you where, where I fall off. I mean, all those things, they're going to be different for every single person. Have you seen anything, uh, uh, Mark, for younger leaders that, that prevents them from really being that kind of authentic and vulnerable leader? Um, you know, honestly, uh, one of the things I love about the millennial generation is how authentic and transparent they are. Mm -hmm. and how accepting they are of other people uh, without labeling and without, you know, John, you and Tom and I all grew up uh, as kind of the, the, the either the right after the baby boomers or as baby boomers, right? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Gen X. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm between, you he know, I'm barely between, squeaks in. He I'm between you guys and the millennials. Yeah. yeah, well, let me tell you, I'm 54 years old, and that would put me like in the like one of the last uh, baby boomer classes. Yeah. Uh, before we moved on to the next generation, and and I can share with you that, um, you know, I never was a baby boomer. Uh, I was I was more of a Gen Xer, and actually, I, I think today I'm more of a millennial. So I was always able to kind of go to the generation and what they wanted. Uh, by by having an innate understanding for them, and it, and I think that's important too. You need to know where people are coming from in order to serve them at any level, um, and you got to know what they want, and you got to help them get what they want, and you got to show up in a way that allows them to be authentic and trust trusting in that moment where um, there there's real connection that occurs, and. And that occurs through, um, you know, I, I guess number one is time. And secondly, making sure that uh, the relationship is authentic at all times. And so let, let me, I think we might get stuck here if, if I don't um, keep going. So really what I needed was now I had the right people. Um, and, and I had to have some way to identify those people, right? So I, I, I want to talk about that because identifying and finding those people is probably 
that it's not probably, it is definitely the most challenging aspect of succeeding through people because you can succeed through the right person. There's always someone who's as talented as you are, who can do what you can do, who can actually do what you do better than you can do it. The problem is, is that, uh, like you said earlier, John, I think we get into a, a pattern where we overestimate people. We want more for them than they want for themselves. We see more in them than they see in themselves. We see all this potential, right? Yeah. So we'll put the wrong people into positions, people that don't want what we want, and therefore they're not going to give everything that they have to give, and they're never going to meet their true potential, even though we see it. So what I found was that um, a model, a, a discipline, a process for finding those people was the most important thing. Well, along that time, uh, Gary Keller uh, had gone and he, he found a, a business consultant um, who, who had a model called RSTMM. And that stands for Recruit, Select, Train, Manage, and Motivate. So this was essentially like, if you can imagine, okay, now you got your undergraduate degree in business, doing what you've done, Mark. Now let's, let's, let's get you your master's and your PhD in business because business is really about succeeding through others. That's what business is. Yeah. Setting up the models and the systems that allows you to succeed through other people, right? Yep. So now we had a three-part model how to recruit and select the very best talent and make the best decision such that if you get a really, really great person in that job, you have done the, the most important thing that, that would move you towards succeeding through someone else. Hmm. Not, not an average person, because you're not going to succeed through anybody average. You're looking for somebody who's great, somebody who wants what you want, someone who has the behavior and behavior is a key concept to have job comfort doing what you need them to do. Someone who has the intelligence, someone who has the track record, someone who has the passion, someone who is in a place where this, this career move is, and remember this statement, the next most logical step in the evolution of their careers. Hmm. <laughs> okay? The so next Mark, what was the... What was that process, that recruitment and selection process? Let me walk you through that. Okay, yeah. so, so it's uh, it, essentially it's, it's several steps to, first of all, identify candidates. Mm -hmm. And um, you do that through a referral dialogue. That's, that's the most effective way to find candidates. So you identify who your, who your allied resources are. You have a script, you call them, you have a company story, you tell the company story, you have a missing persons report that shows who you're looking for. So you have a narrative that says this is what they look like, this is how they feel. Then from there, you start getting leads. You have a screening process. You take them through that screening process. Once they go through that screening process, you make a yes or no decision. Quick question on the screening process, Mark. Are you screening for value, skills, or both? I'm, I'm screening for all of it. Yeah. I'm screening to determine, am I going to have a second meeting with this person? So think of it as a red light, green light. Yep, love it. It's either I'm going to move to the next step or I'm going to stop the process. Now, if I'm going to move to the next step and I had a behavioral profile I gave them, got their references if, I, if the confidentiality was not um, a problem, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, and then... Um, if you're recruiting him from another real estate firm, you're probably not going to get the owner to uh, vouch for the guy. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes you have to wait until the end to do the references. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to get the behavioral profile. And then you look, do they have natural job comfort? Hmm. Doing the job. So we understood what behavioral styles would have job comfort doing each job. And we look for people that would have job comfort. Now, I'll give you an example. In, in college, I was really good in accounting. I have a good math brain. I, I do math equations in my head. I almost don't even need paper. Hmm. It's not hard for me at all. And yet, if you put me in a role where I was doing accounting work all day, 
I'd want to blow my brains out <laughs> every single day. I'd be throwing, pulling over my car to throw up on the way to work in the morning. Okay? That'd be so, low comfort, low job comfort yeah, is what you're saying. Low job comfort because I'm a leader. I need to be influencing people. I'm energetic. I'm not able to sit in an office and just do, you know, like bean counter work all day long, even though I could do it with ease. Yeah. So you want to know that the job is a natural fit behaviorally. So then from, from the behavioral perspective, then you have to validate the behavioral profile. You really build rapport with the person. You get to know them. You learn about their track record. You take them through interview questions. And then you make another green light, red light decision. You're going to move to a third interview or not. If you're going to move to the third interview, you then sort of do a takeaway on the job. Mm. And you see if they grab for it. If they grab for it and you believe they're right, you say I have some concerns. I really, I, I, I want to have more dialogue with you about this job. Uh, I'm wondering if I were to offer you the job right now, what would be your response? And they say, uh, I'd take it. Say, okay, well, I want you to know I have some real concerns. <laughs> and yet, I'm excited about the possibilities. And what I'd like you to do is go home, make a list of all your concerns, all the questions you haven't had a, a, a chance to ask. And um, I'm going to do the same. And I'd like for you to think about what you would expect of me as your leader. And, and I'll think of what I would expect of you. And let's set up a third meeting. So now you come back to a third meeting. What you're doing is you're staying in a mindset of neutrality all the way. Hmm. And you're being evaluative about the person and you're not listening to just what you want, but you're listening to what they want mm -hmm. and who they are. That's a big shift. And Most people when they're screening are looking entirely for what they want. Right, Mark? Right. Right. That's what I found. So, and by the way, and what they want, if, if you, one rule I learned was that if you work on the superficial layer, what they tell you, like, you say, okay, so tell me what, you, what your goals are in, in the next year. And they'll tell you. Like, you're going to have to say, tell me more. Hmm. Elaborate on that. I'd like to dig a little deeper. Yeah. What else would you share? So one rule that I adopted was anytime I got an answer, I would go three layers deeper than the response that they gave me. Because as people go deeper, you get, you get the real truths. <laughs> They're not telling you what you want to hear. Yeah. Hey, what's an example of that to share with everybody listening that was maybe something that really struck you or that you remember as you were interviewing somebody? Oh, it, it, well, um, I, I have an example. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's an awful example. I had somebody that I was interviewing one time and I, I said, uh, tell me about when, when you're at your energetic best. Okay. Because that's something people might have right in front of their tip of their tongue. That's an interview question, right? Okay. And so then uh, we we went and uh, the, the person um, gave great answers. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. What else would you say? Elaborate, elaborate, elaborate. And I said, how about at your energetic worst? Hmm. And the person came back and told me something and I I, I sensed that something was going on. Mm -hmm. And the, the candidate um, said, well, every now and then I get a little low energy. Mm. Tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it is. So when I would find anything where I couldn't get an answer, mm -hmm. My mind, I would orbit mm -hmm. that conversation until I landed. Just keep orbiting. Just keep going. I wouldn't go to the next question. I said, you know, I'm just, I'm just sure that there's an answer here, and we haven't gotten to it. I just want to, I want to keep digging because I want to understand what that means. And the person said, well, I need health insurance. And I said, why? And the person said, I'm dying. Wow. Wow. 
I said, well, let me see what I can do to get you health insurance. You don't need another job right now. Hmm. So I think a lot of times, uh, you know, I'd have hired that person, by the way. Yeah. I love that person and everything about that person. Um, and everything worked out. Person, I think the person's okay today. Mm. And yet I wonder what would have happened if that person gone into that job. Yeah. Mm. No kidding. More stress. So I think that um, not going with the superficial response um, that you get, or the, the you know the first layer response is is important. In, in, in leadership and, and identifying people. So that now you recruit the right person, guess what you got to do? You got to train them on how to succeed in the role. Right. Yeah. And that's the second class, and that is training. And then um, it's taking someone through the first 100 days on the job and determining do they know what to do, how to do it, why they do it? Do, are they effective at it? And if they're effective at it, um, can I get them to where they're self-managed, self-motivated? And can I identify that within 100 days? So if I had the wrong person on the job, I'm pulling them out quickly. Hmm. I'm, I'm going back to square one to find the right person. So what I'm hearing in that, Mark, is you, uh, it sounds like you actually had a process. You had a playbook. Here's your first 100 days. Here's kind of your, you and the, the managers that you're also training. Here's what you're looking at with the new people as far as milestones. So this wasn't just uh, ad hoc each time you brought somebody on. Is that correct? No, no. We had a, we had a, Keller Williams gave us a playbook. And um, I, I actually became the driver of that playbook as the, as the president and then later as the CEO of the company. Because hmm. I, I think that is so important. A lot of people don't do that because one of my first pieces of advice when I was a new entrepreneur was, you know what, you're going to hire too quickly and fire too slowly because you start to develop relationships with people and it's hard to fire somebody. Fire slow, fire quick. Yep. That's, you got to flip. I agree. You got to flip that around. And that's what you're talking about is tools on how to hire well. And then you think you've hired well, but then also then what's a process to make sure that that person can do the job at the level that you need them to do it and that they're going to succeed. So it's, it's a right. win-win for both sides. Right. Was it structurally, was it an actually a probation for that 100 days? Contractually, was it set up that way, Mark? I, it, it really was. Yeah. It was, we have a 100-day period, and this is, uh, you know, it's uh, often we would do a, a provisional kind of employment. Um, and yet that the thing that, that was so brilliant about this process was, okay, so the first 100 days – uh, the degree of control that you're going to feel from me is going to be heavy. My thumb's going to be right down on you. And as you begin to show that you know what to do, you know how to do it, you know why you do it, you know when you do it, my thumb will begin to lift off of you such that at the end of 100 days after you've done every activity of the job and you've had that experience, uh, then at that point, um, I'm going to lift off control. So it's really about helping framing it out so they understand early on that you're going to have a lot of control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as the person succeeds and, and begins to prove themselves and takes effective action, you begin to release control. And there are dialogues that are, that are beautifully framed out about you know, the weekly conversation you have, we, we call it, um, you know, kind of the attitude talk uh, where you would find out how, how their thinking is. And then you go into specific goals and you go into specific uh, objectives that they have for the week. Check off whether or not those happened. If they didn't happen, uh, then you go back to the training scenario, make sure they know what to do and how to do it. Hmm. And then you give them another week and let them prove it. And then if they don't do it, then you can actually take corrective action right then and there. Mm -hmm. so it's always an escape hatch and it's about mutual enjoyment in the role. I, I, John, I'm getting, the, I'm getting the feeling there's a few layers here with Mark. What do you think? <laughs> oh my gosh, Mark, I could talk to you for hours because this is just leadership gold. I wish I had met oh. you when I back. Uh, you know, I was a Navy pilot and didn't know anything about business when I got into my first 
company when I was 28 years old and, and what you're sharing right now, if I had just even known some of this back then, it took me about seven, eight years on just total trial and error. I didn't really know how to reach out and find, I didn't find some good mentors and I didn't apply a lot of the things that you're talking about. And so, you know, I had some great successes and I had some big failures, especially when the internet bubble popped uh, back in the, you know, early 2000s. But I got to tell you, this has been, this has been awesome. I'd love for you, you know, as we're wrapping up to tie this in, you know, the whole theme here, I know this has been a huge part of what you've done and we focused on the entrepreneurship leadership piece, but it's also about doing good and what you've done, you know, what you can accomplish in this world as a force for good because you've built a successful business. So in our last, you know, five, 10 minutes here, I'd love for you to share and so into, you know, what would you want to leave with the people listening that are part of the summit that are tuning in right now? Okay, that's, uh, thanks, John. I, um, the first thing I would say is that um, find mentors, find mm-hmm. people who are doing what you want to be doing, um, get clarity about what you want, and then find people that, that are doing that, that you can emulate, that you can learn from, and who can expand your knowledge in that area. Then I would say, um, make learning uh, the foundation of your action plan. Mm. And I would, you know, I, I have to tell you that I, I looked up one year, I spent $200,000 on outside coaching out of my own pocket. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I attended everything I could attend. I went and found the right external mentors. Um, I always asked for help when I needed it. Um, and I made sure that I had the right people that were helping me think the way I needed to think to get what I wanted to get. Hmm. And, um, that, that, when I say I always ask for help when I needed it, that actually came later as it got more complex. Mm. <laughs> the higher up you go, the more complex it gets. Um, the, 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 the third thing I would say is that the hardest person to lead is yourself. Good point. And John Maxwell says this so beautifully. He says, the hardest person to lead is yourself because you judge others by their actions we judge ourselves by our intentions. <laughs> that is a so, great point. So, uh, dang him, dang him. Is, is be really intentional. Uh, you know, I, I, by the way, one of my favorite books of all time is Wayne Dyer's book, The Power of Intention. I think intention is, is a critically important um, area for you to be aware of. What are your intentions? And then make sure that your actions align with your intention. Does that make sense? A lot of people yeah. have intentions and then don't have actions that are parallel with their intention. Yeah, well, and that just raises pressure and noise, right? Because you That's know you're out of alignment with your behaviors, or at least subconsciously you know, right? And it creates all this tension, and you have no idea why the tension's there. It's, well, because you're not doing what you say you're going to be doing. Right. Well, you know, you, and you said earlier, Mark, you're the sum total of those five people you hang around. But if you, you know, those people you're hanging around, if you've given them permission to hold you accountable to make sure those intentions and those actions are in alignment, I, I, I'll, the results that you're going to have in your life, both your relationships, your business, your faith, whatever is important to you, is going to be so much more extraordinary than if you're just trying to do this on your own. And oh. I. So doing this in community with other men or women who you're being truly just vulnerable and transparent with about who you are, your life, your successes, your failures, uh, those are the areas of, as I look back, where I've just, where I've just hit that, that pivot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on a practical yeah. note, Mark, because, because we've had many of the people on this summit talk about the importance of mentors, and I asked this question of every one of them. If, because if you're that 28-year-old listening to this uh, summit going, well, that's easy for Mark to say because he's accomplished this and done this and done this. But how do you approach, what's your advice for people approaching potential mentors uh, beyond, you know, actually taking the step to ask? 
How should they plan that presentation? What are the, some of the things they actually need to make sure they've got their own act together before they approach that potential mentor? Because you and I both know mentors happily say yes, but they also don't want to be wasting their time. No, no, they don't. No, this, this is what I would say is that you have to figure out how to be a person of attraction. Okay, so tell and, me more. And, and that seems really simple. Um, and yet I have, you know, I can tell you that I have, I've had a lot of people come to me and want me to mentor them over the years. And I've been willing to work with anyone who wanted to see me at any level, always willing to talk to anybody. And what I found was that very few people come back for a second visit. Hmm. So, um, I'll, I'll give you uh, a sentence that is pure magic, and a, a, a good friend of mine, uh, I know Liz by this motto, and, and um, my, um, my dad shared this with me a lot, and I, I think this is Calvin Coolidge, and that is persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. So if you wanna be mentored, you have to persist. You have to stay determined and you have to be more passionate about being mentored than the mentee is passionate about not mentoring you. Mm. So Tony Robbins said this and I, you know, like I, I have these quotes that I've built my life around and I, I'll share a couple more. I, he said, whenever two or more people get together, the one with more passion determines the outcome of the meeting. <laughs> mm. Oh, be that is so true. Be more passionate about being mentored than the mentee is passionate about not mentoring you, and you'll win every single time. Love it. Love it. And, now, and, and, and I know I know we got to wrap, so John will wrap in a moment, but I, I just got to tell you guys, the reason Mark is here is because we met on a tarmac when his private jet landed. He'd just come back from a quick trip to the coast, West Coast for a meeting. I had five minutes to say hi, introduce myself. And I thought, what a passionate guy. And so I said, would you want to be interested in joining this summit we're putting together? And he goes, sure. Boom, done. 30 seconds in. And I said to myself later, you know what? He's actually the type of guy that wouldn't say that lightly. So I'm going to follow up like crazy to make sure. And I didn't have to follow up like crazy. I just followed up and you're like, yeah, absolutely. Let's fit it in. Let's find a way to make it work. So I just want to thank you on behalf of everyone listening into the summit for, for modeling exactly what you just said clearly day in and day out. And I'll let John wrap, but uh, I'm just so appreciative of you of fitting us into your schedule, Mark. Appreciate uh, it's my, my pleasure. I'm, I want to, before, before we go, I want to, I want to share one quote with you. Yeah. And you know, what's remarkable is that I've had, you know, breakfast with Jim Rohn. I've had lunch with Zig Ziglar. I've spent time with so many. I've lots of time with John Maxwell. Uh, I've spent time with Dennis Waitley. Uh, people that, mm. you know, I grew up thinking were the greatest thinkers of all time. Mm. And uh, in 93, I think I had a year where I didn't hit my business goals. And so I did a lot of reading about that. And, and you know, there was a, a Jim Rohn, actually this is Dennis Waitley quote that I read that got me back on track. And this is what I would say to any entrepreneur uh, that if I could help them with one thing on how to think, it would be to share this quote. By focusing on positive, healthy, motivations and letting the more negative ones pass you purify your source of imaginative power mm. and so mm. you have to manage your energy and i believe that's where people fail where people get off track is they stop managing their own energy 
So again, it's by focusing on positive, healthy motivations and letting the more negative ones pass, you purify your source of imaginative power. And when the negative ones pass, you have to acknowledge them and you have to acknowledge that you want more and you can do more. Mm. And I would say, um, managing how you think is probably your most, um, like if, if there was a steep hill to climb <laughs> in this process of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. In your own thoughts and feelings effectively. If you'd like to learn more about Mark, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 114. That's eternalleadership.com slash 114. And if you're a regular listener to Eternal Leadership, could you give John and I a hand? Could you give us a rating and review on iTunes? It's how most people listen to podcasts, and those ratings and reviews help bump us up those charts. The higher we are, the more people that quote-unquote stumble onto us. But if you don't listen to iTunes, rate and review us on whatever platform you listen, or just share it with someone that you think could really benefit from our topics and guests. Thanks. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.